I love that the most powerful brain model we've ever built still can't understand how the world health insurance works. Or maybe you shouldn't piss off our smartest robots by using it for health insurance tasks because that's what's going to make them kill us. Yeah. <laughs> this is Unsupervised Learning, Red Points AI Podcast. I'm Jacob Efron, and today we had an awesome episode with Mario Schlosser, the CTO and co-founder of Oscar Health. Oscar's a $3 billion public health insurance company. They've been at the forefront of innovating in tech and healthcare for the past decade. And so Mario just has a fascinating seat and lens toward all things happening in AI and healthcare. Oscar is both an insurer, they provide care to patients, they're experimenting with GPT-4 in pretty much any way you can in healthcare. I think they were one of the first people to get OpenAI to actually be regulatorily able to work in healthcare. And Mario just had some fascinating insights on what it means to actually implement these models in the ground, in the weeds for real use cases, as well as some broader kind of zoom out looks on the future of healthcare and AI. I think folks are really going to enjoy this conversation. Well, Mario, thanks so much for uh, for coming on on Supervised Learning. Really excited to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you guys have been uh, pretty prolific in, in publishing a lot of the AI work you're doing, and so I feel like it will be uh, it'll be fun to dive into a lot of threads uh, from 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 some of the things you published on Medium and Notion and whatnot. Yeah, no, looking forward to it for sure. Let's see if I can re represent it verbally as much as in written form. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly believe an LLM should do that's like very similar to the LLM restrictions you know they can they can write quite well and they can't speak as well just yet so I guess I'd love to just start at the heart, uh, highest level like, you know you're one of the first kind of healthcare guests we've had on the podcast um, so I'll just kind of ask you in the next decade you know where do you think AI is going to have the biggest impact in healthcare so one of the things that I think LLMs are very good at is the is going from informal language to formal language and the other way around you know, from literally, you know, conversation to summarization, uh, from um, comments to writing code in GitHub Copilot or whatever else. And I actually really think that healthcare might be the single industry where you have the most of both, where you have the most formal language, ICD-10 codes, you know, CPT codes, um, utilization management guidelines, and all kinds of other stuff that is very, very formalized, very regulated, very structured, but also lots of really human language, right? Any conversation between the provider and the physician and the and the patients and any electronic medical record notes and things like that. And that is one of the reasons why healthcare, I think, um, had comparatively little algorithmic coverage, I would say, in the last, whatever, 15 years or so, right? There isn't really the equivalent of page rank in healthcare. I don't know what that would be, you know? I mean, there's all kinds of models, of course, in healthcare, predictive models that predict when you go to the ER or whatever else, but their logistic regressions and stuff like that. And they always sort of ended at that, at that surface of um, where you go from formal language into informal language, in a sense. Now we have LLMs, and they are incredibly good at exactly that threshold to go between formal and informal and back and forth again. And so, um, so I am just looking for all the use cases that are right at that intersection. And for Oscar, and, and I think for the healthcare system overall, that initially, I think, means that a lot of the use cases are in the on the administrative sides. So uh, when we pay claims, for example, we run a claim through a very, very big rule base, which is really just all rules-based, and we can create a very long trace of which rules got applied and which order and which ones failed and which ones fired and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you can look at that, and as an expert, you can make sense of it and say, okay, this is why the claim paid and didn't get paid. Um, but it's hard to do for any kind of layperson to look at this thing. And LM can now look at this thing and say, okay, let me translate this from this very formal language of trace from the claim system into informal language, which is what the hell even happened here. Uh, and there's a lot of use cases like that. So I think that is going to be the next five years of healthcare. All this administrative stuff has to become real time, has to become 
um, sort of like, you know, bi-directional very easily, has to become much more transparent and all that stuff. And I think if we do that right, then we will have a healthcare system where you go to the doctor, you will know right away what something will cost you. Uh, you will be able to right away say, you know, whether there's a better alternative um, than the thing you're about to do as a patient or the thing that the doctor is about to tell you. Uh, and there's no more issues with weird claims getting denied and authorizations are coming through and things like that. I think that's kind of the next five years, if you will. Of course, then the big prize has to be how much can we replace the caregivers and the clinical intelligence with machine intelligence. And that really means eventually you know, bringing down the cost of doctor visits by a factor of 10 or a factor of 100 or whatever else, and, um, you know, replacing specialists with AI and things like that. Uh, that, of course, runs into all the issues of hallucinations and safety and LMs in insulting people and uh, biases that are baked into the trading um, uh, manuals and everything else. And I, But I, that obviously has to be the goal as well that we eventually get there. Um, for Oscar internally... That's exactly how we're sequencing it. We have of the top four use cases right now, I would say three are administrative in nature and one is clinical. Uh, and the clinical one, we don't have a lot of expectations for to kind of break through in the next three months. But for the administrative ones, we are like, all right, by mid-February, we're going to solve this. And then we got to go move on to the next one and just much more much more D than R in the R&D. No, it's, it's a really interesting point. I feel like the ability for LMs to yeah to go to different levels of sophistication depending on the end user or end audience, you know, one makes a ton of sense for people to finally be able to understand their insurance bills or where their claims sit or all these things that are probably, you know, you have to speak one language to, uh, you know, internally and to regulators and, and everything. And then another language to your end user of an insurance product. And then you can obviously imagine on the clinical side, uh, you know, there's probably uh, a level of a conversation the doctor wants to talk to another doctor about as they're referring a patient, but then they also want to communicate the visit itself to the patient. And so the ability to kind of transform the same set of data into, you know, different uh, information for different audiences, I think is super compelling. Another thing we certainly realize when you compare these use cases is that in the administrative use cases, the healthcare system collectively has already spent a lot of time to make the inputs and the outputs very clean. Okay, if you pay a claim, it's going to get paid based on the stuff that's on the claim. There's a clearinghouse, there's a format for it, an 834 and whatever format, an EDI format and all that stuff. And you largely decide based on what's on these things, okay? Um, and the output is very clear as well. I, are you going to pay it? Are you not going to pay it? Are you adjusting it or, or whatever else? That is not the case in clinical use cases. And one of the things we realize when we even do something like summarizing a conversation between an Oscar provider in an Oscar member um, in a virtual primary care setting, for example, right? Oscar runs a medical group, it's about 150 caregivers, providers, nurses, and so on in it. Um, we record all those conversations. We have an LLM summarize those and generate the medical record from them and all that kind of stuff. What we realize there is that the biggest difference between the LLM written summaries and the, and the human written summaries is that the human written summaries contain subtle contextual knowledge that the LLM cannot possibly have had because the provider might, I don't know, look at a previous conversation or whatever, even remember a previous conversation that he might have had with that particular patient that is not showing up in the medical records, you know? And so when the inputs and outputs are less clean, it's an unfair playing field for the LLM because how the hell would the LLM know that, you know, you talked to this guy 10 days ago, whatever. I mean, you know, it's sort of in the ether, but um, you put it in there, but you don't often have it in there right from the get-go. And so in, to some degree, 
um, in, in improving of LLM's performance in some of these more uh, wide open use cases, uh, many of which are clinical use cases, will also have to not just come with improving the LLM itself, but in, in, in improving the horizon of knowledge of the LLM, so to speak, and all the stuff you put into it. That's so interesting. Like for some of these like administrative use cases, because of, of how it has to be structured, you have all that. Inf- you have the same information, the same playing field. Uh, but you know, but the the point is, you know, maybe there's a hallway conversation or a text message or something yeah. that, like on the clinical side that the that you know that you can't feed in this context. That's yeah. that's really we, interesting. I mean, we used to just to make another example there. Actually, we, we so Oscar has these um, concierge teams, uh, or now we call them care teams, where we have a number of people and they focus on a particular block of members. Okay, and some. Uh, the way we organize them, and we found this out many years ago, is that we said we should have them focus on certain geographical areas. And the reason was that if you if you live in Manhattan and some, or in Brooklyn or whatever else, uh, your way of getting around the city and getting to physicians is just going to be a different conversation if you live in Phoenix, Arizona, or whatever else. Right? You're going to drive a car in Phoenix. You're going to drive the subway in Manhattan or the bus, or whatever else. And so. That contextual knowledge, like what is the weather today in Manhattan? And is it okay for that guy you're talking to to go to the bus stop and take a bus downtown or whatever else? Is weird knowledge that the agent probably has, right? that the that the LLM probably doesn't have, un- unless you give it to the LLM, of course. And that, of course, then goes back to, okay, how can you give way more context to the LLM than we currently generally do in these in these, in these these setups? Taking a step back, I'm curious, like obviously as Oscar, you I think you said this really interesting place where you're obviously an insurance company, you're, you know, kind of renowned for your consumer experience on the insurance side. You also have, like you said, a provider group, you have care managers. There's like so many ways I could imagine you guys using AI internally. And I think even on your Notion page, you've gone through a lot of, of the potential ones. You, you mentioned kind of three administrative use cases, one clinical, like, I think our listeners would love to understand a bit more about just how you guys are leveraging AI today. Yeah. So um, I would almost say the so we're an insurance company, right? So, um, which means we, we sign up members and then they pay us, if you will, a subscription fee. That's how I like to put it. So we like <laughs> sell them a package of healthcare services effectively. And then everything that they do in healthcare will have to get paid for by Oscar, whether it's a cancer surgery or a drug or, you know, some medical equipment or something, a wheelchair or something like that. And so um, that means we have really three levers uh, that determine our financial outcomes, which is always a good thing to start with when you think about running a company, right? At some point, the finances, finances have to have to work. Uh, one is, can we grow faster? Can we retain people in a better way? Um, and we have a bunch of applications in that category, okay? The second one is, um, how efficiently do we run the operations? And that's all the administrative use cases I mentioned before. And the third one is really all the stuff on the clinical side. Can we somehow reduce your medical costs and, and improve your outcomes, right? Those sort of go hand in hand. And so what can we do there? And to give you a bit of a taste of how this, of how the financials work there, which is honestly one of the reasons why I originally started Oscar, because I thought it is just so juicy and interesting to be able to be an insurance company and try to affect these, these financial outcomes. One of the reasons that Oscar... Um, went into the Affordable Care Act market is so that we have a bit more control over who stays with us and who leaves us as a member. Typical insurance companies would um, usually sign up uh, employers as opposed to individuals. And so, you know, employers don't leave and join Oscar because, or an insurance company because the experience great or not, right? There's all kinds of other considerations. Right. But you as an end user, you might really stick around if we gave you a great experience, if you like the service, you like the conversation and all that kind of stuff with us, Right. So that's in the gross and retention buckets. Um, but then on the admin side and the clinical side, 
85% typically of an insurance company's costs are medical costs. And so of $100 we get, $85 will go right out the door throughout the year for drugs, cancer surgeries, all that kind of stuff. And then $15 can go to what's admin and some, even commissions and marketing, whatever would be in those $15 as well. And so um, in some sense, it's way easier to, to you know, automate an internal process to you know, save a little bit of money on the, on, the, on the administrative overheads. But it's way more fun and powerful and better for the healthcare system to get at the $85 that constitute medical costs. Right? A little bit of, of, of savings there goes a very, very long way towards improving margins. And margins, by the way, of insurance companies tend to be between 2 and 5%. Right? So you, you, um, you save a tiny bit on the 85% and you've, you have know, double your margin suddenly. Right? That's really the way, um, the way that this works in, in a very powerful way. Um, so in all of these three buckets, we try to see uh, how, can, how can AI work, help us and how can LMs work um, I can give you one for each, if you will. Uh, on the growth and retention sides, I would say we've done the most on the retention sides. Okay, so the way our business works is that we have essentially six weeks at the end of each year where members can re-sign up or newly sign up for the insurance for the entirety of the next year, which is an insane sort of Christmas business type of thing, as if you compare it to retail, right? Like if we have that plus like uh, times ten basically. Nothing, everything that does not happen in these six weeks is basically just not very relevant. <laughs> and, um, and that means we better land the plane in, in a really good way in those six weeks. And so, so on the retention side, for example, what we've tried to do a bunch there is to just run a lot of outbound campaigns, reminding members in a very personalized way of why we think they should like Oscar, why we did something good for them right. in the preceding 12 months. You know, um, And there are things that we find that have a lot to do with, with personas of members. For example, uh, and honestly, I can go one level down, but two levels down, I don't know, and I don't think anybody else knows either. But you know, we found, for example, that reminding people of getting colorectal cancer screenings had worked particularly well from an ethnicity point of view with, Asi with Asian Americans in our case. You know? So interesting. There is an interesting segment now that we can identify and we can, we can go after more directly and then say, okay, we reminded you of getting your colorectal cancer screening. You went and you did that, um, that was helpful to you, that felt like a kind of good preventative care step to take, and you should be happy about that. That Oscar reminds you of these things, can serve, get you to the right doctor at the right time, um, and that's why you have a health plan. That's why you have Oscar, because we like to have that conversation with you. Um, there's an interesting difference between chronically ill members of Oscar um, and generally healthy members of Oscar. You know, one of those segments responds much better to messaging around empathy and the other segment responds much better to um, messaging around uh, just convenience, you know. Um, and so if you are chronically ill, you 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 are already dealing with your illness to some degree. Uh, you already know how to use the healthcare system for the most part. And so then cutting out some superfluous steps for you goes a lot farther than if we told a generally healthy member, hey, you can now go to the doctor more quickly. You know, that's that resonates less. And the sort of like empathy, nice message resonates better with then people like you and I are probably generally healthy and just need a little bit of talking to to go back to the doctor, you know, for the right reasons. And so those are all the things where that are very much in this domain of, you know, language matters, how we phrase things matters, um, how we sort of read your mind a little bit, if you will, through the conversations you've had with us matters. Has like GPT-4 out of the box worked for that? Or like, have you had to yeah. tweak, the, like it just kind of works? Yeah. I, I think it, it works well for this stuff. I mean, sort of, you know, extracting from, 
customer service conversations, uh, I mean, certainly what the issues are, the patient came with or whatever else, or, um, you know, a little bit persona, character, whatever, that stuff you can extract quite nicely, quite easily. Yeah, that that's def- definitely works. It works even in small ways. Like um, uh, we, I think, have, um, I think we have uh, ethnicity information for about 65, 70% of our members. It just, you know, we, we are able to collect it in the onboarding or we get it from one of these state exchanges. We get it from the federal government, whatever, something like that. Okay. Um, and as I said before, that's an important matching mechanism to get you to the right doctor, have the right conversation with you, all that kind of stuff. How to remain, fill the remaining 40% is a great LLM use case. You know, looking at the name, perhaps, and, you know, looking at the, you know, other sort of the conversation in, you know, just even detecting the language that the last conversation was in. Those are all these kind of things that were definitely possible with normal machine learning models before, but they definitely get easier by just sending one message to GPT-4 and yeah. say, all right, which language was this? You know, was, was, was this Tagalog or was this uh, Kiswahili or whatever else? You know, it just knows this stuff. And so that's, uh, yes, useful for lots of things out of the, straight out of the box for sure. So that's growth and retention. Um, I'd say in the admin space, uh, that's probably the area we've published the most about. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and current top of mind use cases are, uh, we've been running this call summarization in, in parallel with our care guides taking notes on, on customer service calls and, and we're increasingly phasing out the manual note taking and just kind of completely letting the LLM do it, uh, the, the summarization note taking of the call. And not even having the and telling the care guides you can stop taking notes. You know the LM will do the whole thing for you. Um, we've launched lab test summarization in the Oscar Medical Group. We've, we've launched um, secure messaging medical records generation in the Oscar Medical Group as well. Um, we've launched these kind of uh, claims explainers to the internal care guides as well. Those are all things. You know, I would say they probably save us on the order of a few cents, PMPM. Those are the magic four letters in healthcare. It stands for per, per member per month. Okay. Um, so Oscar probably, I mean, to fill in these numbers from earlier, we probably have a, um, a PMPM revenue premium of about $600 per member per month that we get, okay, per member. And then 85% of that goes, as I mentioned before, to the to, to medical costs and 15% goes to admin or whatever. So, you know, you can do the math. One or two cents BMPM does not like shoot the lights out, but you get 10 of those and it starts getting more interesting. You know, that's definitely a bit more. That's where you add up the savings really. So that's on the admin side. And on the clinical side, I'd say um, earliest, those are the earliest use cases. But the biggest one there right now is the... I would call it talking to the medical records. For the doctor to talk to their own medical records or for the patient? Yeah, for the doctor, for the caregiver, for the customer service agent, almost for anybody inside of Oscar, you know? I mean, I feel like a lot of our listeners are building general AI applications and they're probably like a bit scared of healthcare, right? I mean, there's all these regulations, there's, you know, HIPAA, there's BAAs that people want to sign. Um, I think it'd be really interesting. Like, can you talk a bit about like those requirements and how they kind of manifest themselves when you're like just implementing these models off the shelf? Like if you're using a GPT-4 or Mistral or uh, Claude, like, you know, have have people built around these requirements uh, and and what like restrictions does that mean for, you know, maybe there's a, a customer support company out there that's like, oh, we could do this for healthcare, but healthcare sounds scary. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, those are real things. And, and so I always say that um, I think we were lucky that we were a highly regulated insurance company uh, because we had to take this stuff seriously from the very beginning. And I think it made it easier later on to, 
I don't know, not blow up because our financials were in shitty states, whatever, you know, or because we weren't audited properly and stuff like that. So, I mean, it made it easy to go public, for example. <laughs> so, it, you know, 10 out of 10 recommends um, to be highly <laughs> regulated. Well, you know, partly. Um, so HIPAA is the biggest one. It's, it's the biggest constraint in these things. Right. And HIPAA is around just basically like not being able to share patient-specific information, right? Yeah. We could not. They had to sign a so-called BAA, Business Social Agreements, and they weren't signing those at that time. And, and healthcare organizations had to go to Microsoft and Azure. And I think they were starting to sign them around whatever, February, March timeframe or so. Um, I think Oscar was the first organization to sign a BAA with OpenAI directly. Uh, so um, great claim to fame. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, But it's... But, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like Anthropic will now sign a BAA, you know, um, OpenAI will obviously will do it now. Um, you know, you know, Mistral, you can run yourself, so you don't have to sign a BAA, right? So, so, so they are, so you can definitely, you can, you can deal with it. It's just the thing you got to watch out for. The place where it comes to, into play today is, um, you know, waiting for, for Google's Gemini Ultra, for example, um, we're, we're sitting on Google Cloud Platform on the analytics side, and we have AWS on the on the production side. So we kind of have both of these at the same time, and so we are always testing all of the new LLMs that come out from from either of those of those um, area from from those guys. And and we really mostly have OpenAI right now. And in OpenAI's case, we sort of wrote our own gRPC service that interfaces with them, and then we have internally internally we essentially expose all the models, but it runs to a, a defiance. Um, pipeline to them effectively that lets us audit better who's using it, what are they sending there, all that kind of stuff. Where we see HIPAA come and come come against us today is when any of these guys publishes a new model. Like when Google now puts out Gemini Ultra, for example, it will not be under um, whatever release thing that automatically makes it part of the HIPAA agreement we have with them. That will always come later. So we have to always have, we essentially have test data um, that we internally generated that's more or less than synthetic. It's some, some mix of like anonymized and synthetic um, that we will use for these new models uh, because we know we can't just send, you know, medical records there that are real medical records. But once that's sort of like a distance of, I'd say, three to four months typically. You know, I would expect Gemini Ultra to come out and then we can start using it in early access. And then, I don't know, three months later, they will put it in broader release, whatever, still kind of guarded, but then broader release for people like us. And then we can start using it for everything and then sort of it becomes public, you know? So I think that's actually mostly fine. That's really interesting. Basically, like you can test it. You're, you want to test out the model anyway to see if it's good. So you'll test it out while you're waiting for them to yeah. to get, uh, you know, kind of be willing to sign that. When you're running uh, like Mistral or an open source model, like what, you know, I'm sure there's companies out there that are doing that and they're like, well, I guess we could, you know, since we're, we're the entity itself, like we could try and go sell into healthcare. Like, what do they actually need to put in place in terms of checks and balances to make sure, like, you know, they're ready to go talk to a hospital about, you know, doing, uh, helping them with like customer service calls or, you know, patient messaging or whatever it is? It's a huge question. And I don't think there's a great answer. So hospitals will make you go through security reviews and, and, and policy reviews and so on. And they're basically long checklists. Um, and I'm sure you can ask, honestly, a hospital what the checklist is. You know what? Actually, let me check with my legal people if this is a service Oscar could do to society to take one of the recent <laughs> checklists, read it out, and just publish it. So, <laughs> you know, so you can see what hospitals generally would want. Um, but there are also some uh, there's some certifications that if you have them, it will be much easier. Like high trust is one of those. You know, if you're high trust certified, then uh, then a bunch of these things fall away. Uh, but I would look at those things as 
final hurdles to get over. I don't think they are the ones that really make the, make a difference for you in, in at, at the end of the day. What makes a difference for you at the end of the day is whether you can get a hospital to trust you and your solutions. And that will not be outsourceable to high trusts. Um, and that is very difficult. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I think um, health systems are and insurance companies are not good at rapidly prototyping things. And they're not good at, at you know, doing that rapidly. You know, I, I mean, in, in really any way, um, the ones who are are then not good at following up on the rapid prototyping. Yeah. <laughs> so you just will spend <laughs> endless amounts of cycles in that process. And so um, it is one of the fallacies, I think, in, in health tech is that you spend too much time on your products and too little time on this kind of enterprise sales process. Um, yeah. The best products in healthcare, unfortunately, do not win. It really still is the best enterprise sales processes that win. And uh, it, it makes, makes way more sense for you as a founder to spend time in conversation with whoever's on the other end and then, you know, kicking the tires together with them and things like that, then for you to tweak your model for the 10th time and hope that somehow that's going to make a difference for the, for the sale, you know? So that's a little bit the, the disillusionary message there. I think um, I would say, well, one of the things we did recently is we were part of a consortium of health systems and, and some insurance companies that, that wrote a document about principles for AI and the use of it in healthcare. Um, there's a website uh, as well. Yeah, I we'll link to that in the show notes. You know, I helped write that document and a whole bunch of other very smart people in healthcare helped write it. So, you know, folks from UC San Diego and some Boston Children's and uh, HCA and some, you know, various payers and so on. And one of the things that we put in there, and I was excited about how every, excited everybody else was about this, is a lot of positivity around AI solutions. Um, and really saying AI and generative AI in particular can can democratize analytics in an organization. You know, more people can use it. And it's almost our duty as leaders of these organizations to get more people into contact with GPT-4, Mistral, whatever else. And we put that in there with exactly that purpose so that the flywheel can eventually start spinning faster. Well, you talk about how, I mean, I guess like, you know, hospitals and traditional payers may be a bit uh, slow in trying a lot of these things out. Obviously, you guys are, are super fast and nimble. Um, and I feel like I've been trying all sorts of use cases. I'm curious if there's like an example of one where, you know, once you saw the power of these LLMs, you were like, wow, this would work so well for X. And then you built it and you're like, actually, okay, this doesn't <laughs> doesn't quite, uh, not ready for prime time or, or not actually that valuable. Yeah. Well, I give, I give an insanely simple example, which I think goes to a very basic limitation of LLMs, which is um, call, call summarization in, in the following sense. If you take a bunch of customer service phone calls and you tell GPT-4 in the context window, um, characterize each call and what it was about and give it a reason, like come up with reasons what these calls are about, your own taxonomy, and then give me how many were about reason A, reason B, reason C, and then sorts by reason, okay? So what you want in the output is these in these 100 phone calls, there were 31 that talked about claims issues. There were 29 that talked about, you know, virtual primary cases or whatever else. GPT-4 will fail at that miserably. It is an incredibly weird, an incredibly weird thing. Um, and it will fail if you make it too big in a weird way. Uh, and so this is a very, very fundamental limitation of LLMs um, it, because it almost like, to put it naively, runs out of layers. You know, these transformers, they have all these layers, right? And it's all the, it's basically all the blocks and they get repeated many times. 
um, in GPT-4 has, actually I haven't said how many layers it has, but it's probably like, I don't know, 100 or whatever else, right? Um, and, and on the simple language models, like GPT-2 or whatever else, like really early language models, people have done all kinds of interesting interpret interpretability studies where they've looked at when you take the sentence, the capital of France is blank, and you let it fill in that token, um, then you can see GPT-4, I think, uh, GPT-2, I think, has 20 layers or whatever else, that by layer, by layer 10, it has not identified the token that will be the final answer. But layer 11 has that token, and it doesn't change anymore until all the way until layer 20. Okay, so there's very clearly a layer-by-layer layer processing going on that somehow at the very end leads to the synthesis of, yeah, it's Paris, you know, and that becomes the, becomes the thing. And so effectively, when you have a do a task where it first has to process all these tokens and say, okay, here's call one, is this reason? Call two, is that reason? Call three, is that reason? And in the same processing, it has to then also count them. It sort of like maybe does the first identification until, metaphorically, in layer 10, and then needs but another 10 layers to, to split, count it. Have you been able to split that up just into to different steps and different calls to the model to make it work? Yeah, so cha like chain of thought, is that's the reason why chain of thought works, right? Chain of thought does not work because the LLM thinks whatever. That's not the case. Chain of thought works because it effectively you chain LLMs to each other, right? You almost like expand the layer space, if you will, right? Um, and you have the bottleneck in the middle of the token generation, really. Um, but um, that that is one of the big things you can do there. And so, and so um, that I find super strange. And I think the, the reason I mentioned, I mean, this use case is easy to fix. You just, exactly what you said. You just have it run several times, whatever, and you can refine it over time and all that kind of stuff. And you can have a taxonomy, you put in the taxonomy, you ask them to refine the taxonomy over time, whatever, whatever, that all works. Um, but the reason I say this is because in it's hard to sometimes see how composed your task is, right? It, this is an easily decomposable task, but the task of, is this guy a smoker or not? How many subtasks are really under this task? That is somewhat hard to say, right? And so um, that is, I think, still for us, the, the, the big, uh, big thing to think about. I'll give you one more example, which is a totally different, different flavor, but literally also something I looked at earlier today. Um, so again, medical record extraction, okay? Medical record, you want to know certain things about it. For some bizarre reason, uh, the, the, the question that is very important in deciding whether Oscar authorizes certain care for members, this is a process called utilization management. Okay, we look at medical records, we say, okay, Jacob should get a surgery or he's not allowed to get the surgery, right? That's insurers do this all the time. Uh, and we have to also do it. And I think there are good reasons why this is an important step in the process and all that kind of stuff. Um, the way these things work is you effectively have questionnaires and you have to answer questions in more or less binary question answers. Okay, yes or no, and then they get mixed together in some kind of and or, or formulas, okay? And one of the questions that shows, shows up quite a bit is, does this member have a post-traumatic injury? And so that is the single highest false positive question that an LLM has so far tried to answer for us. And I honestly don't really know entirely why, my speculation would be the following. Um, there's also research that if you look at what GPT-4 really is, it's sort of a weird superposition of all kinds of different personalities, right? It's It's got the crazy personality. It's got the terrorist personality. It's got the, you know, the Harvard <laughs> personality. It's got the whatever, like the gamer personality, all that stuff, right? And again, this is a very metaphorically speaking type of thing, um, but it's sort of really what it's in the weights, the weights are some weird position. Yeah, I guess as, as the whole internet is, right? Like, 
Exactly right. And there's weird failure modes as well, as you've probably seen, right? You can put certain tokens in it, it suddenly flips over into some weird personality and whatever. So that seems to be going on. And my best guess would be that um, uh, if, if the LM sees post-traumatic injury, it is enough of a concept that a lot of lay people have some association with. Like you and I would sort of have a general idea of what that is. Like, oh yeah, shit, this guy broke his leg. He's got a post-traumatic in an accident. He's got a post-traumatic injury. However, that is a concept that is very well defined in the context of these utilization management decisions, you know, where that's right. not that same thing. And so you have to somehow- I guess the training data for the model has all sorts of references to post-traumatic data that have nothing to do exactly. with your utilization management context. Exactly. Have right. you been able to then like, I mean, do you then have to just break it down into steps? Like, was there a, I mean, I, I don't know the, the utilization management criteria for post-traumatic injury, but like, is it, you know, was there a traumatic event, you know, get that marked, then like, was this injury related? Like, have you found a way to kind of subprompt it, I guess, into, into answers or uh, still a work in progress? I'd say yes, and no, it's certainly a work in progress. Um, one of the things we've been doing there is to say, um, uh, is to actually have the LLM create a sort of self-consistency questionnaire. So we say, okay, post-traumatic stress injury is the following. Give it a cup, give it a few short examples. Few short examples is always good, right? Give yeah. it a few short examples. And then have a pre-processing step where you tell the LM, I want you to tell me 30 different ways that this will show up in a medical records. Okay. So you prompt the LM for its own knowledge, basically. And then we use those 30 ways and we put them back in the prompts. And we then have those kind of get executed in parallel. Um, and then you take those together and you have it sort of rates rate the 30 different independence reviews of those different different um, methodologies and that gets you that gets you another 10 20 percentage points in in sort of accuracy roughly Interesting. You know? so it gives you like 30 potential ways that would show up in the medical record you then yeah. have it evaluate those 30 ways to see if they're actually good answers exactly. and then based on the output of that you put you keep putting that back in the prompt at the start exactly of right exactly right exactly and you have to really do it cool. independently you can't do it in one pass right otherwise you get the token whatever pollution if you will yeah, yeah. Right? cross pollution pollination pollution um but independently it does work yeah that's super cool i mean yeah. one of the, you know I, I think like the, yeah the specifics are always i feel like the most interesting parts of these conversations and like yeah. one other one i was fascinated by is i think you guys you know built this claims assistant product and it's like you know if i were, if we were to describe what it is i think it's basically like you guys internally have all sorts of complex logic around where a claim sits, you know, is it going to get approved, like all that stuff. And it's used in very insurancy type language. And then I, as a member, probably want to be like, where's my claim? Like, is it get, you know, what's going on? And so I think natural LLM use case, I think you, you guys worked on basically, how do we take where that claim is in our own internal systems, complex language and make that intuitive to the end user. And I would have like on the outside, you know, like many problems, it feels like, oh, maybe GPT-4 out of the box could just solve that. And I feel like that was far from the case here. And so I think it'd be interesting for our listeners, like maybe talk a little bit about like why that was such a complex problem and like what you had to to do on the model side to make it actually work. Yeah, no, it was, it's fascinating. And, and I would say it's still fascinating that the part of the use case we have, I think more or less cracked is the, is the simple denial question, which is basically why did a claim get denied? The part we have not fully cracked is the actual, why did a claim get paid $11 so not $10? Okay, that's that's yet another step of complexity. So we're still working on that part. But yeah, exactly. You, you said it very well. We have we built our own claim system. Um, it's a giant rule base. And um, you know it's very well audited. And it can go forward and backward in time and all that kind of stuff you need for running these kind of big systems in that regards. And we get a we have our own 
domain-specific languages in the claim system. We have a language called Layer Cake. Don't ask me why it's called that way. It's all <laughs> for some reason bakery-related, uh, you know, metaphors. <laughs> we've got like we have, we've got Muppet Show, we've got animals and and bakery-related stuff. Those are like the engineering team code nice, words. Nice. You know? So anyhow, um, so Layer Cake, you get essentially a very, very long list of which rule got was fired and what happens in the rule, okay? Um, you know, which contract got invoked, which with provider, um, under which, you know, exception, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's I think, a thousand lines of logic, whatever else, for any given claim when you just look at it ends to ends. And a lot of superfluous stuff and redundant stuff, whatever else, but you get, that's what comes out of the system. If you put that in the GPD-4, First of all, you literally have a you have a context window issue. We started doing this, um, you know, in the summer last year, or whatever. Uh, I think the high, the biggest context window was eight thousand tokens, and it just literally didn't yeah. fit in there. Okay, so that was not that big of a deal. Now it's thirty two k and 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 whatever. Um, but a version of this problem you will always have. There's always some like abstraction level type of thing you have to think about with regards to the context window. Um, then the other thing is that. The longer this this got, the less GPT four knew what was going on. Uh, it, it was good for sh- shorter decision uh, trees, for longer ones. I love that the most powerful, like you know, brain model we've ever built still can't understand how the world health insurance works. I feel like there's something telling about that. That is a beautiful <laughs> and very terrible thoughts. You're right. I didn't. Never, I never thought about that, but you're exactly right. <laughs> or maybe. Um, we shouldn't piss off our smartest robots by using it for health insurance tasks because that's what's going to make them kill us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. We'll give it some more fun, uh, more straightforward like tasks first. writing or whatever, you know, the bounds right, out, right. the kind of, you know. Shakespeare rap big. songs, you know, whatever. <laughs> exactly right. So, um, yeah, so it failed at all this stuff. And so what we basically realized that we had to, we had to give it these prompts, uh, the, these tr- traces, but we had to give it the traces at a certain level of hierarchy. And so we said, okay, We'll give you everything, but we don't give you the sub-procedure calls. Like whenever it stepped down to some kind of a function internally, we we just said, okay, it's now calling the function of determine geography or like determine gender or something like that, you know? Um, it, and we didn't give it the output of the function. And then we told GPT-4, now it's your job to find out which of these functions you want to double click on and, and where you want more detail Interesting. with a sub-trace under that particular call. And that ended up being working very well you basically had to focus it on like you have such a mass amount of information that you basically had to figure out how to prompt it to focus on some subset of that information. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and some, in the denial case, the reason why the denial case is easier is because you can generally you can generally find quite well which function call it was that made the claim get denied. You know that function call might have had, had might have had other functions calls in it, but at least you know where to look. Like there's 99 function calls. In the hundredth one fails. All right, that is the one you want to double click on and go down into, and then whatever. Right? I guess one th- one thing I'm curious about from just hearing you talk about these use cases, it feels like you guys have gotten really smart on like different kind of prompting strategies and ways. To, f- to what extent do you feel like you're picking this up from like the literature, um, picking it up from like informal conversations with other you know tech leaders that are trying this out, or just like trying a bunch of stuff and it's like oh that 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 bucket happened to work. Yeah, it's a great question. So I I would say honestly it, it's ninety percent trying stuff out. Um, it's um. Uh, so I do a lot of paper reading, just honestly, not because I'm very good at it, just because I like it. You know? um, and I, I take notes on all the papers I read and I put them all online. I mean, that's all in this Notion side. Now it's actually in Squarespace. So uh, um, oh, nice. but it looked nicer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but people should take a look at that, Um 
we upload new papers there all the time. And so, and, and the ones I, I have a very big bias towards reading papers about interpretability um, and these weird failure cases, because I think they tell you the most about how these things work. Um, but the ones I always send to the team are the ones about prompting strategies and what I would call systems design, right? This is really systems design. Um, it's almost like less about the prompts, I would say. It's more about the, as you yourself said, that how you chain them together. When, when, what's the first call? What's the second call? What's the third call? That stuff, I think, is the most powerful. And um, there's a good amount of, so I think this, the, the, the idea of, of prompting GPT-4 to generate its own way of looking at the medical records in the literature would be sort of in this self-consistency um, area. That's a sort of chain of thought disciple, if you will. Um, and that was really researched quite well there. But I think the guy at Oscar who did it um, didn't even get it out of a paper, just discovered it independently. I'm like, hey, this is, just, this is what that is called, you know? Um, the guys, like there's all this like great research being done within companies. And I wonder how that ultimately gets, you know, it's not formal academic work, but it's like obviously incredibly helpful to the ecosystem. And I wonder yeah. how that ultimately gets, ends up getting shared across companies. Cause there's I think probably should, an engineer in so many of these places just reinventing, you know, similar to my stuff. I think we should all share this stuff. I mean, I think, um, this is why we put the, 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 the AI side out there. Right. And, and I ask other people all the time as well. And, and, uh, I mean, there is a good amount of learning, I think, going on in companies exactly right, and we should all learn more about it. I mean, I'm always surprised with how little we still know about this stuff. I mean, it's it's yeah. just, it is mind-boggling. You know, I had this thing the other day. This is a fun one. I I, I wrote about this on Twitter as well. Um, you know, OpenAI has these custom GPTs now where you can, you know, you, you can build your own GPT or whatever, right? And you can upload some files to it as well, whatever. And so you can upload Python files. Like, it connects you good Python code, yeah. and it can be files you upload as well, which I find pretty cool. It can call functions as well, but I didn't want to have mine have a function call. And so I try to sort of like make my custom GPT follow a, a fairly formalized state machine, okay? Like literally go from state zero to state one, to state two, whatever, and back to state one, all that stuff. And, and so, as is very typical with LLMs, it would constantly lose track of that thing. It would just be like in state two and would go like invent a state or whatever else. And so the way I then I was able to get it done then is to in the Python codes, tell the thing and now you have to go back to state zero you know which is an unbelievably weird programming paradigm you know <laughs> totally not only generating code but generating language yeah, from some natural the instructions in there <laughs> yeah it's the strangest thing and so anyhow it's just a novel intelligence we're talking to there and and i anyhow i think that stuff is really best done by sharing about sharing it and discussing so i'm glad you are getting people to talk about it <laughs> no no it's really it's super interesting i mean i guess another thing i'm curious about is like you guys have obviously been really thoughtful in how you've chosen models and i think you've said you know it sounds like gpt4 out of the box ends up being the most powerful one there's obviously been this movement toward like healthcare specific models and i think google has like metlm um which maybe i don't know if you guys have played around with but i'm yes. curious like if you're a, a betting person going forward like do you think you end up for a lot of your uh, use cases, staying on like a general purpose model or like using some of these more healthcare specific models that are trained just on healthcare data and maybe don't have like the, you know, for post-traumatic injury, maybe you're just trained on like medical record data on that yeah. versus, you know, whatever bloggers on the internet think. What we've consistently found to date is that when you go and specialize in a particular area, you just lose alignments, you know, the, the, the model just will not follow your instructions anymore. And it, the simplest thing is always the famous you know, your answer needs to be in JSON. That simple, I mean, that sentence is just one of the most terrifying sentences for LLM users, right? Because you want your output to be formalized and all that kind of stuff. Um, and GPT-4 has a switch now to create JSON as opposed to just right. natural language. 
And you tell MedPalm too to put out stuff in JSON, and it just forgets it half the time, at least half the time. And so, um, it's a very simple example for losing alignments. Um, you just will not get it to follow your instructions anymore. And so, uh, I don't think, I personally don't think that a general purpose model that would be specialized would be more useful than a general purpose model that, that is just bigger. Uh, because you because of that issue. However, it's entirely possible that in the future we're able to de-link the symbolic processing, if you will, the planning, and take that out of you know the, the transformer logic and have a transformer just do the contents, if you will. Right? That's sort of like the dream of every uh, of every AI designer that you have a separate reasoning system and then like a content system wherever else and. We don't know how to do that right now in GPT-4 or anything else. But once you get to that point, yeah, sure, it'd be great to have a, a clinical model. Until th then, I think, the, put, use the biggest model you can for the best reasoning and maybe do some RAG, you know, retrieve up into generation or whatever um, in the meantime. There's a recent paper um, that looked at uh, the combination of RAG and fine-tuning and the combination of both of these together. Uh, and and they they chose to be in the agriculture space, and they basically showed that. And I found this interesting too that rag and fine tuning gets you independent improvement in performance. Okay, so you're better off doing both of them at the same time. Yeah, everybody wants it to be a binary thing. I feel like you know, I guess yeah, we, we would always ask like rag or fine tuning. It's like, yeah. yeah, the reality is that they're probably both helpful. Kind of do both. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, another thing I'm, I feel like a lot of companies are thinking about, and I think it's super relevant to you guys, is like how to structure AI teams. And so I imagine there's a lot of like basic work you guys do in AI that is very relevant across all of the AI products you ship. And then obviously, as you talk about the use cases, I'm sure you have like a claims team that builds products around members interacting with claims and a team that builds product for your providers. And, you know, I think there's this debate of like, do you embed the AI folks within these like individual product teams? Or do you have some like horizontal AI team that sits across? Uh, how have you guys thought about like structuring yeah. that? That one I'm actually quite proud of, to be honest, uh, because I think we have a good model going there. Um, so... This started with a hackathon, really. Um, we, we do this quarterly hackathon at Oscar, and uh, it just basically means everybody can you know, take a day or two or whatever and just work on something, classical hackathon stuff. And um, the, the one with the most participation we ever had was at the beginning of last year, and it was the first AI one we had. So, you know, we had GPT-4. That was before GPT-4, I think GPT-3.5, whatever, at the time. And, and so we had that direct link already. We had signed the BAA, I think, with OpenAI already, and so people just got like the hack on stuff. And so um, it became so obvious to me, all these things you and I were talking about already just now, which is you got to share this stuff. You got to talk to each other about what prompting does and all those things. And and that's where this HiOscar.ai site came out of. And so we formed the pods. It's a seven-person pods. Um, it's got a, a, got a, a two product managers. It's got a bunch of data scientists. And it's got a bunch of engineers on it. And they have... They have office hours every week and everybody in the company who works on anything related to AI can come to them and say, this is my prompt. What do you guys think? Okay. What else have you seen? They have their own three priorities. Okay. So we always have essentially three projects that the pod itself needs to finish and needs to do. And I think that's really important as well, because otherwise you just spend endless time on just research and, you know, kind of wavering and, and not getting, not finishing anything off any, any time soon and they also have a they also have a a weekly hacking session which is monday nights two hours sometimes even longer where anybody can come and the pod definitely is there and i'm always there uh and and anybody can can bring any idea that they want and so we had an oscar engineer bring 
his own trading system. He built like a little bot that helped you, you know, trade stock or whatever else, right? That was cool to see. And here's how he built it and stuff like that. We had last week, actually this week, we had the broker commissions team. You know, we use brokers to sell Oscar policies, right. whatever. Uh, commissions is one of the other one of these things that has a lot of rules around it. And there's a language internally that that governs which who gets which commission paid and all that stuff. So they use that system to explain which commissions had gotten paid and which ones hadn't gotten paid. Sort of like the, the OSA bot, the claims spots, effectively. They showed off their system and what they were doing there. Um, we had the utilization management tool um, earlier this week. And if we don't have anything, I usually show one of my things. I show the whatever picture generator I created last week or something like that. Um, but the point is we need to lower the bar, like to just make it insanely easy for people to come with something that they tried even if it didn't work. That's why I always also go and do something that I did because I feel like the more embarrassing I can make my stuff, the better because, you know, it lowers the bar for everybody else. Like this is, by the way, great CEO and founder rule. Whenever you do karaoke, you have to sing as a founder. <laughs> it's just no excuse not to sing. Because, you know, if you sing, then everybody's like, oh my God, you know, that guy can make an idiot out of himself. Now I can go and do it. And, and um, by the way, the other rule is also, it is absolutely, you know, I, biases are a bad thing for sure, but it is absolutely the case that if you go and sing at a karaoke night um, and, and then you go and say, hey, Mario, I had a cool idea about healthcare. There's probably something in me that would want to make, that would want to make me listen to you a tiny bit more because I'm like, oh yeah, that person took a risk and sang and it's entrepreneurial and, you know, like I want to listen yeah, the, to the first idea. The next Oscar karaoke night's about to be wild. You know, now if people listen to this, it's like everyone will be fighting over the mic. Probably. Yeah, we haven't had one in a while, actually, post-pandemic. But uh, but so that's how we set it up. We got this, they got the pod. And, and the pod also has a list of all the other AI projects in the company um, just to kind of keep track of them and whatever else. Yeah. And I think that's a very nice mix of sort of, um, you know, you have something centralized, something's decentralized, and everybody knows that they can come to these guys and, and have ideas and, and whatnot. Works, I think, quite well. Oh, I love that. And I guess as you've been building these, uh, you know, these features, I feel like we're so early in, in kind of having any sort of tooling around, uh, you know, helping folks build them. Any like things that have come to, you know, that have, you've seen like three, four times, you're like, God, I just wish there was something that helped us do X or Y. Like, you know, I guess the shameless VC request for startups uh, question. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say the safety layer, right? So, um, is there anything... Is there some way that you your LM produces output, your model produces outputs, and you send it somewhere else and it verifies if that thing is not yeah. insulting? How do you guys biased. solve that now? Uh, honestly, right now with a human in the loop. I mean, any any use yeah. case where where there's danger of that happening, it just has goes to a human right now. You know, that's the the lab test summary goes to a doctor. The um, the claims explanation doesn't go directly to the end user; it goes to the care guide agents. You know, the care to the to the claims agents and whatever else, that can't stay that way. Obviously, if you want to have clinical chatbots, we have to have direct-to-consumer GPT-4 or whatever GPT-5 outputs. But that's still a fairly big one, I would say. Faster inference times, quite simply as well. I, I it, Sometimes I think, why even, who needs GPT-5 when we could run GPT-4 a thousand times in parallel, right? Like I do lots of, even with my kids, I try to get them to... You get, I mean, I do it with them, basically. I sit next to them and I say, let's do a game, GitHub Copilots. You know, I now have I'm, I have chat now, GitHub Copilot chat, which is cool. I can chat with the LM as well. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, whatever, let's do like a Defender game or something like that together. And so, um, in code generation, you can verify if the code works or not, if it's real code or not. And if you could generate a thousand listings in parallel, 
and run them all in parallel, like in a microseconds, who needs a better LLM? You can just pick the best of the thousands outputs. I feel like GBD 3.5 pricing has come down. I mean, they're always slashing it, and it's gotten to the point where it's it's so cheap. Um, yeah. You know, you really could do that. <laughs> it's it's defi- definitely from a cost point of view, for sure. I think that one is just still in much inferior to GPT-4 from a quality point of view. You know? so, uh, well, then by the time 5 comes out, it'll be so much better that, uh, you know, who knows? I think that's probably true. Yeah. Who knows if we're, if we, anybody needs us still, you know, at that moment in time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We shall see. Hopefully we have at least till seven or eight. Um, I, I guess like, you know, you probably, it's something, like, I mean, you think about all this stuff so much. I'm curious that if you weren't building Oscar and, you know, you were just starting a net new healthcare AI company, like what do you think is like most interesting, you know, best commercial opportunity? Like where, where would you start? Does it have to be healthcare or can it be a, a generic? I know, I know everyone wants to flee healthcare once they've had to be yeah. been through it once. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll keep you, uh, we'll keep you just because you know it so well. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm sure. curious where you see the opportunities. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but I feel like, does it have to be healthcare is the classic second time healthcare yeah, founder question. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, because my, my answer in healthcare would have been, um, you know, pick a very, very, very obscure niche of healthcare where you know you're solving some very particular issue for for enough people who are not technical uh like you know regulatory filings composition that that actually might be a good one i mean i you know oscar struggles with um things like um how do we create the right kind of regulatory documentation without too much overheads and not just even for for healthcare regulators but even for you know, for SOX compliance and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we as a public company, we have to do a lot of work in that. And, and so, you know, it slows down engineering to some degree. It's also very important, obviously, to get it right because you want to have high quality output and you want to be able to sh- make sure you pass these controls. But I always wonder if there is, an applic- is not an application of, of Genify in exactly that. Like, it's, you know, regulatory reports have to be written. They're natural language. They're not just tables. Can you generate them more easily by having some LLM watch your data flow and generate them automatically. I think there's, there's something there, um, in particular, actually, in the clinical space. Uh, you know, we produce uh, clinical reports to, let's say, the NCQA. That's a it's sort of like not a governmental organization, but a private organization that's, however, is tasked with um, improving quality of health plans. And we file reports to all kinds of state regulators and state health departments. There's a lot of there that can probably get generated pretty automatically and would be totally fine to, to do in that way. That's probably where I would go. Super interesting. What about like, I mean, one that comes up on our radar all the time is I feel like there was a million AI prior authorization companies that were launched last year, you know, uh, obviously being the, you know, what the information you have to send to get approval from an insurer to get a certain kind of treatment. And, you know, I'm sure you guys think about this yeah. use case a fair amount. Like, is that, is that an interesting market or a good space? Um. I would say yes, with a qualification that uh, I feel like that is very, very close to the core competency of what an insurance company has to be able to do. And I don't understand really necessarily why people can't do it themselves better, uh, including us. And so the the risk I think you run there is that you're trying to take a very neuralgic thing away from an insurance company. And if you just take it away, and you don't somehow make it very interactive and very, um, you know, platformizable, if you will, for that insurance company that you are sort of like taking this from. I think you're gonna have a low horizon of what you can get to, a low ceiling of what you can get to. You know, um, this is really what insurance companies think that they need to be good at: clinical management and and post discharge planning from the hospital and all that stuff. And I wouldn't say they are very good at it, 
but you sort of, you know, catching them where it hurts, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> I would actually say the other thing is fraud, waste, and abuse. That is still an industry that is that is very dominated by a lot of very old school players that make a lot of money still. And it strikes me as not clear why you need to overpay a bunch of fraud, waste, and abuse companies on the on the back ends. Yeah. Makes total sense. I mean, you know, in your in your kind of like uh, overview of, of AI use cases for Oscar, you talked about kind of interaction automation on the clinical side, and I feel like that. I know our listeners are going to want us to ask about that. Like that feels yeah. the big question in in AI healthcare. You know, will there be kind of this future AI doctor? Um, and so I'm curious, like, you know, how you see that that kind of space evolving over uh, over the next five ten years. I mean, I I, I have I see no reason whatsoever why we shouldn't be heading there. Uh, it's you know, doctors are probably the 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 most. I you know, don't quote me on this. Actually, you can quote me the most computerized profession we have in some sense, and not just computerized because they use computers, but their brains are the most computerized. Right? <laughs> it is very is regimented. It is it is all existing knowledge. It's a lot of inference based on complete data points or whatever. It's all very algorithmic. Why wouldn't an LM be be able to? to map all that in, at, at a very, very, very high quality. I, I, I don't see the reason why that wouldn't be the case. When we look at what the practical issues are, um, I would maybe say there's two, well, there's three. Safety is obviously one of them, right? Right now, it's very difficult to get an LM to talk directly to an end user, so that, that's for sure, but we talked about this already. The second one is, is um, physical interact, what has to be physical, what, has, what can be virtual. We did this research at some points that when we, we looked at all of our claims, or like a sample of claims a few years ago, and we had physicians go through all of them through the sample and look at how many of these claims could have been done in a virtual setting, how many of them how many of them would you have needed to be in person? And I think the in-person percentage was something like 35% or so. Okay. So that means two-thirds can go totally virtual. The problem was it was two-thirds of claims, not two-thirds of people, okay? And so if you're a diabetic, for example, there's going to be some amount of things you have to do in person, like, you know, foot exam and things like that. And I think that is the other big issue right now. When, when we look at our um, attribution to primary care physicians, so in other words, we have a member and the member is, the member told us, this is my PCP. And we actually see in the claims that guy is going to that PCP, primary care physician, okay? You would think the percent of that prime member's primary care go to that PCP is like 99% or whatever else. It's not. I think something about 28% of those members will see another PCP in that same year, which to me is mind-bogglingly high. It just means that the, that the loyalty to specific physicians and even phys specific physician groups, okay, you have to look at this on a group level, is not that high, you know? Um, but it also, I think, is a reflection on the fact that a lot happens as you go and need to do the one thing you have to do in person and you immediately get sidetracked away from kind of doctor computer, if you will, you know, doctor digital. Yeah. Um, and so as long as we can't do lab tests uh, virtually, as long as we can't do sort of like your hands on virtually or whatever else, there will be this leakage that will keep clinical chatbots from, you know, be replacing physicians effectively or, or replacing the system in a bigger way. I think that's a big holdup. And the third one is business model. It is just unfortunately the case uh, that right now, if you are a health system, and I don't mean this cynically at all, even though it is kind of makes you cynical a little bit, um, if you're a big health system, 
there's not a lot of incentive you have to switch towards lower costs uh, channel, channels of care delivery because that will mean the insurance companies will and the government will put pressure on you to reduce reimbursement costs, which of course will mean then you have to reduce capacity and all that kind of stuff. And so the insurers would be in a good position to deploy automated virtual primary care, but they mostly can't because they don't have the member engagement and all that kind of stuff. It's the conundrum of the U.S. healthcare system. And so anyhow, that's the third thing that I think we have to somehow cut through over time. Well, Mara, this has been a fascinating conversation. We always like to end our interviews with a quick fire round where we get your, your quick thoughts on a few common questions. And so maybe to start, I'd love to hear just one thing you think's overhyped and one thing you think is underhyped in healthcare AI today. Well, okay. <laughs> overhyped. I mean, I think clinical chatbots generally overhyped. Underhyped maybe voice outputs. Let's pick one thing, you know. I think you can get pretty far pretty quickly there and uh there's a lot more we can do there. As long as they're not talking about clinical things. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, uh, which healthcare AI startup, you know, outside of Oscar, are you most excited about? Mm, I mean, honestly, I would still say OpenAI. <laughs> I hate to yeah. say it, but I, I just think, uh, um, I just think they, they're still building the best models. You know, I would also say Hugging Face, even though it's not AI necessarily, not healthcare either. But uh, I just love the fact that they are, you know, they're creative. They, we have a contract with them. We use them for consulting purposes as well. Um, having one place where all the models collect is, is, a, is just is cool. Uh, well, I feel like there are so many threads in this conversation people are going to want to pull on. So I will leave the last word to you. Where can folks go to, look, to learn more about you, about the exciting AI work you're doing at Oscar? Floor is yours. They should go to highoscar.ai. That's our collection of papers, of Oscar articles and insights and all that stuff. And we try to really be very open about insights we have and, and things we try. So if we crack that use case on the medical records extraction, for example, that'll be all on there. People can look it up and see and do it for themselves. Um, I think they should follow me on Twitter as well. Um, Mario TS, okay, at Mario TS. Um, I try to post my own stuff there, my own explorations, and, and certainly also all the Oscar stuff we're doing. Um, I want to do a lot of stuff around games, by the way. So if people have interest, any interest in helping me figure out those use cases in gaming, then I would love that. Are we going to get a gaming healthcare collab or is it completely outside? So old idea, not done, but very like long time on my mind is um, take all the material on the Oscar Google Drive, all the presentations, all the documents, whatever else, run that through some kind of system that then generates a an RPG, like an, a role-playing game where you can be whoever you want an Oscar. Like you can be a regulator or you can be the CEO or whatever else. And you have to sort of like relive the last 10 years. You know? And I think every company should have that. And and I've had various attempts at it. Clearly LLMs are the solution for it to actually do this, but um, uh, but it's not there yet. But if anybody wants to help build that, then definitely please come call me. Uh, the other one that I'm, I have a version of, but it's not working yet, is um, a game. It's like a you know, remember the Oregon Trail? This game of way course, back in the classic. days, you know. The, the Oregon Trail is is like a basic program, literally the language basic. That's on GitHub as well. Actually, you can look it up. It's pretty cool, and it's a very simple rules, very very simple sort of like formulas and rules, whatever else, and sort of like state machines of sorts. Um, and a, an LLM that writes those games as you're playing it. So you start playing the game with a very simple mechanic, and it adds more mechanics as you play it, and it will <laughs> add the mechanics so that the overall game economy always balances out. Interesting. So that's another one. I have a very simple version of uh, but uh, um, yeah, that's another one. But those things are on Twitter, for example, so just definitely follow us there. 
and yeah, just send an email or whatever and, and a DM and looking forward to chatting more about this stuff. That's awesome. Well, Mario, thanks so much for coming on. Seriously, this has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Really fun to do. And uh, keep me posted if you're seeing cool stuff out there, please. <laughs>